Greetings ladies and mental gents, and welcome to this batch video of one-shots taken from the HUPI subreddit. The links to the originals will be down below, and as always, I hope that you enjoy. And if you do so, please consider subscribing, because for those that don't, you will be visited later on by a biomass-eating cloud of sentient nanites. Story number one, A Warrisome Affliction, written by Horrorbad12. Of those that we've encountered so far in the void, humans have demonstrated the greatest capacity for self-destruction of any sapient species. The distinct quality is incorrectly attributed to several other races. I am well aware of the Yuvuki, whose people consist of twelve warring tribes during the start of the Atomic Age. Nine of them simultaneously learned to split the atom, and the ensuing exchange rendered the planet burnt to a husk within six of their days. In fact, it was that incident that provoked the Conclave to enact the Divine Intervention Protocol, sort of a dramatic name for such a militaristic maneuver, but it saves lives nonetheless. Since the Avuki ceased to exist, nine more pre-void flight species have been saved and successfully integrated into society at large. So too am I cognizant of the Emishuan. So far, the only pre-void flight species to go extinct. There was a strange society. At best, I could describe it as sort of a militant meritocratic theocracy. When they lost the war for their homeworld, the warrior priest caste believed in a divine retribution, a cleansing act perpetrated by their pantheon of gods. Cleansing acts are common amongst religions of many species. Human texts mention the Great Flood, and our own books speak of the firestorm that was likely of solar flare in nature. The difference is we survived. We found redemption and continued to procreate. Not so with the Imishuan, who committed ritualistic suicide to complete their god's punishment. So tragic was the loss that the victors could not bear the consequences of their actions. They made landfall and gave proper rights to as many bodies as they could before erecting a monument and leaving the planet untouched any further. Why then, you ask, do I call humans the most self-destructive species yet known? How could they, with their comfortable lives, their young but sprawling frontier, their mostly united and largely peaceful society, ever stand against the likes of the Imishwan and the Ovuki? Our society stands upon the pillars of six schools of thought. One of the core pillars is the duality of mind, the idea that each individual is made of a corporeal and incorporeal, the physical and the spirit, the spirit cultivates the physical, I once described it to a dear human friend in a Lee man's terms as the spirit shaping the body to best carry out its will. Of the spirit there are two halves, values deemed compatible with life and those deemed incompatible with life. With enough of the former, the body grows strong and the spirit flourishes. Too much of the latter, however, and the individual is rendered weak and feeble-minded. We were once a warrior people, and the old ways still color our modern lives. For us, death is compatible with life. A friend, a family member, an enemy. Death is natural and should be embraced. But it should be a good death. Die with your last breath spent raging against an enemy. Die quietly in your bed surrounded by those whose lives you've bettered. Die alone, spending every second of your final hours improving yourself. Do not mourn the loss and do not grieve for them. And indeed, 
a great many were lost during the war, when the unknown aggressors fell from the void to take our world. It was humans that immediately came to our aid. I was there during the pivotal moment. After my ship had crashed, I was the one of the few left to hold the final line. I had already decided how I was going to die. My comrades' weapons in both hands, charging headlong into an enemy ranks, when a human troop reinforced my position. For sixteen hours, we held that spot. The plasma blaster crater being our only cover. In one last desperate act, the aggressors charged to engage us in a vicious melee. All but one human, a corporal named Sarah Volker, was cut down in a glorious fashion. Deaths worthy of remembrance and of honor amongst their own halls. In the end, Corporal Sarah Volker saved my life, and I saved hers. At the joint award ceremony, she tried to kill me. We had both just been bestowed with medals by the other's leaders, and then the audience began to clap. She screamed and launched herself at me, trying to strangle me. She couldn't get her hands entirely around my neck, thick-bodied as our kind are. Among the shouting and confusion, she was quickly subdued, and the audience was ushered out. A group of human doctors tended to her before she was whisked away to a hospital. It was a day that I learned something humans call post-traumatic stress disorder. Humans, especially for all their boisterousness and the vibrancy of the marines, do not accept death well. To them, death is an incompatible with life. The more bombastic, the more gruesome, the more glorious the death the greater distress it causes. Any reminders of it can trigger an episode of this distress. Sometimes it is debilitating, rendering them unable to participate further in normal life. For Corporal Sarah Volker, it was the clapping which sounded like the full sight of cracking plasma fire that had taken the lives of several of her comrades. They so eagerly go to war to help others, and yet it destroys them, body and mind. They know this, beyond any doubt, they do know this. And yet, they still continue. They are compelled by their nature. Ask any of us to do something incompatible with life. Ask us to not fight. Ask us to hide quietly, perhaps and live another day, or desert another to save ourselves. We would not. We could not do it. It is just not possible to fathom. In this, the humans are the same as us. But only we are able to cope with death, to embrace it and welcome it. Even still, ask a human to face death, to wither and rend apart her spirit in defense of another. Without any further thought, she picks up her rifle, dons a power suit, and springs to battle. It is these brave men and women who deserve our attention. This ailment they suffer from has proven stubborn to medicines and therapies. Some find limited success in treatment through administration of psychotropic drugs. They report feeling better, but never does the spirit return to how it was before. Our own pharmaceuticals, namely the anastasiox and trophohydric, show promise. But more research is needed. More work needs to be done. That is why I must tender my resignation and formally request re-education in xenobiology xenochemistry, and xenopharmacology. The humans have thus far been unable to cure their service members of this affliction, this tattered spirit that plunges their lives as a result of witnessing or causing death, of coming to the fence of others. 
I must devote the rest of my life to helping these men and women to not be so incompatible with life. Hashanalik, 2nd Admiral, 6th Sculptor, Void Fleet. End of story number one. Story number two. The Ultimate Gift, written by Hax Minor. It was a commonly held belief that sapient life, while it could exist elsewhere in the universe, they practically didn't exist at all. The universe was so huge that there was no way to really go out and find other sapiens in a reasonable amount of time. Of course, this didn't stop the legends of alien abductions and crazy conspiracy theories about how aliens were watching our every move and had been doing so since the dawn of time. If they really did exist and knew that we were here, why wouldn't they contact us? Well, we finally found out why. Instead of searching for aliens, we spent our time trying to figure out how to terraform our moon into a second planet of salts. We'd need to establish a moon base before all else as a foundation for everything else. I was part of the survey team to investigate potential spots for a base. And of course, since everything I've said has herethro been past tense about aliens, you can imagine what we found. I was surveying the twelfth sector of the moon when I came to a very large, unusual rock formation called the Font of Ilthkara. It looks like a massive fountain with petrified in the rock, and the name comes from an old mythological fountain that granted infinite wisdom if you survived drinking the water. As I drilled to take a soil sample from the base of the formation, my harvester hit something impossibly hard at about twelve feet down. Following the standard protocol, I stopped drilling and contacted the ground and the rest of the heavy survey team. Several months later, we had excavated a relatively small underground complex on the moon, and being the discoverer, I was allowed to accompany the archaeologists and the veritable army of military personnel to investigate the structure. The thing that had stupefied us was how utterly ancient yet futuristic the complex was. As far as we were aware, our moon was never habitable at any time in the past, and the vast amount of life support systems found in the building seemed to confirm that theory. Close to where I had made my initial discovery, we discovered a hidden entrance within the font of the Kara, and that's what we used to enter the ruins. After, small army ensured no traps and other security measures or even extraterrestrials were in the structure, the archaeological team was then allowed access. I still vividly remember entering that door and having my life changed forever. We entered a medium-sized chamber with large black panels covering one wall. With a large device, we figured it was a control panel. Upon inspection of the panel, we noticed that it was covered in individual buttons, each inscribed with individual letters, none of which we could define any meaning. Cautiously, I pressed one of the keys on the panel, and the panels flared to life on the walls. A large picture appeared on the screens, showing a black box embedded in the wall, along with a video showing an alien pressing its extremity onto the box, and showing more instructions to follow after pressing the box. Taking the lead, I located the bizarre machine on the opposite wall of the room. Its color is almost indescribable, jet black, but it looked almost like it wasn't entirely solid. It appeared to flow with a pulse from deep within, which was unsettling to say the least. After touching the weird black material, 
I was frozen in place, unable to move. I felt something within the machine physically connect with my arm and lock me in place. It only took a second or two, but suddenly the world was spinning as the machine disconnected and left me feeling extremely dizzy for a few moments. After stumbling away and a few cries of concern from the archaeologists, I noticed that the screens had changed and were waiting for an input and now glowing green button on the keyboard. Upon pressing the button, a video began to play. Hello, I am Dr. Ibrahim Al-Wazir, final head of Project Prometheus. We hope this video reaches its intended recipient, but if not, it is of little consequence. This video goal is to explain the facility that this project is, and finally, hopefully connect our two species together. Fire has always been vital to humanity. It was a massive anthropological debate as to what size and role the fire played in our evolution. But nevertheless, it changed us as a species. Our founder sought to elucidate the actual importance of fire to humanity's evolution. And as the Project Prometheus was born, the goal of Project Prometheus was to see the role fire plays in inducing sapience and higher intelligence in species. This facility that you are standing in is known as the Good Old Research Outpost. Its purpose was to record the results of Project Prometheus and to establish a place where communications between our species could take off from once the project concluded. This facility is equipped with... The video came for several more minutes with the doctor describing the machine that interacted with as a universal interface and one of the species' greatest technological achievements. Despite being unable to understand the alien spoken language, there were subtitles on the screen in our own language, somehow, allowing us to follow along. Though we had to replay the video a few times to fully understand its meaning due to the gaps in the translation. These aliens, these humans as they call themselves, made us who we are today. In the video, the doctor told us that a wormhole generator that would allow us to travel to humanity's home world. After another month and a half of preparation, the small team of five, with myself included, activated the portal within the basement of the facility. After alighting with the portal, we found the planet lush with wildlife and greenery, but no humans to be found. Seven years passed of intense exploration and immense cities that lay in disrepair from what appeared to be a millennia of disuse. It was a haunting and chilling experience to walk amongst the massive buildings and parks and roadways, with no noise except for the shuffle of your boots against the hard pavement and the labored breaths of your squadmates as they walk in a brutal sunlight. None of the science fiction and horror stories that I had read in all my life could have prepared me for the exploration of the dead civilization on planet Earth, nor were any of us terrifying. In the middle of the eighth year of exploration, we decided to begin investigating the vast amounts of technology and knowledge that the humans had amassed. Despite being a botanist and geologist by study and profession, I became engrossed in the human philosophy and mythology. We entered the golden age unlike any seen before in our species' history. Humanity had developed technology to infuse massive amounts of information into a biological brain. Along with ways to expand mental processing far beyond any natural limits. Humanity had progressed beyond even the imagination of our greatest science fiction authors. 
but even they weren't invulnerable. 12,000 years ago, a mysterious virus started infecting the population at a massive rate. The virus killed within several hours of infection, making study almost impossible. The vectors of transmission seemed to be anything. The air, the treated water, any tree, handrail, insect, dog, cat, person, your clothing, everything. It was only a few months before the virus spread to the human colonies through the wormhole generators and wiped out humanity everywhere. The virus only seemed capable of killing humanity with impunity. Most everything was able to shrug off the infection, though several other species did see massive death, not extinction, from the virus. With everything we had gained from humanity, it seemed cruel for them to have disappeared before we could even have a chance to express our gratitude. We searched for a way to repay humanity for what they did for us. And, as it turns out, there was a way. Two years ago today marks the completion of Project Fifth Day. Forty-seven years and millions of failed experiments, we have found a way to reach into the void and reclaim what was once lost. While they may only be a shadow of what they once were, we will rebuild together. Looking at the video feed of the chamber, I watched as the scientists pressed several commands into the control panel, wires retracting from the man's head, tubes out of his throat and lungs, and an ivy in his arm injected the last fluids before withdrawing. Several tense seconds passed before his eyes slowly opened and he sat up. The researchers then asked the man in a clear voice, My name is Delocto. What is your name? The man shakily got to his feet, blinked a few times as he responded in a gravelly voice. I am Adam. End of story number two. End of the dispatch video. If you wish to support the author or the channel, all the relevant links are down below. But the easiest way would be to share this like a plague to everyone and anything that you can think of. And until the next video, I hope that you all have a good time, and I'll see you then. Cheers.